Hello, outlets. Hey, it's a very special episode. It is. Yes, it yes. is a shameless story time episode. What? But Another one? But it's a double special because it is the excerpt episode. What? Yes. We have what? featured. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got really excited. Say what? <laughs> we have. Sorry to everyone's ears. Hope you didn't have earbuds in for that. Um, I think you hit a higher note than I did, which I is think I did. really impressive. I, I, I got a good range. Yeah, you do. It's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. And we've got a range of stories for oh, you. Oh, a segue! <laughs> Professionalism. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Um, yes, we have, uh, some of our favorite authors. These mm-hmm. are people today who have been on the show or will have episodes coming up where they are featured on the show, but they all have novels that either just recently came out or are about to come out. So we wanted to give some of our favorites a chance to promote their work and mm-hmm. let you hear some of the work that they have, uh, out there for you to purchase now yeah and um please listen to them look them up yes buy their books like they're they're great so. links on our site as always yeah. and i don't want to give too much away no, let's I let don't the authors speak for themselves yeah so listen to the whole episode listen to all of our writer friends and with that we're going to turn it over to the authors hello i am author ryan leslie and my debut novel river is coming into the light june 14th and I wanted to read you an excerpt from her. This is a part of chapter 17 titled, Don't Look. At first, all River saw was white. The floors, walls, and ceiling were all painted a blinding white, so it ran together, making it hard to tell where one ended and the other started. The windowless room was large, the ceiling high. Looking around, she saw dozens of glass cases, some small that sat on glass pedestals, others quite large. This was where the color came in because the cases were filled with things, dead things. Taking a deep breath, River cut further in the room. She immediately regretted it when the smell of the dead assaulted her. She cleared her throat. Fuck, she could taste the mustiness of the decay which made her nauseous. Added with the glaring white of the room, her headache pulsed sickly. It was a fight not to throw up all over that snowy floor. Directly in front of them stood a seamless glass case that came to River's neck. Inside, a fat pink pig stood in the middle of four little piglets. Someone had painted their cloven hooves a bloody red with gleaming rubies in their empty eye sockets. They looked evil as hell. Angel ran a hand over the glass. My babies, she said happily. River slowly looked at her. What the actual fuck? Angel walked further in and they cautiously followed, going by another seamless case that held a large black panther. Or was it a jaguar? Maybe a puma? River could never tell the difference. It was black, but still had spots in its thick, velvety fur. It didn't look taxidermied. It just looked frozen. Hanging out of the panther's mouth was a bloodied gray kitten that looked like it had just been killed. River's stomach clenched at the blood that had dripped down, making a bright red puddle at the panther's feet. She glanced at Cat, who was focused on the kitten, a grim look on his face. Angel led the way to the center of the room, stopping by a tall glass tank filled with murky water. There was a large thing in it, with a thick, coiled tail. Large fins fanned out at the bottom, drifting eerily in the greenish water. River looked at it and looked at it, but her mind refused to accept what she knew it was. A moan escaped, making her wrap a cold hand around her throat. It was an actual mermaid, 
Even though Amber and the girls had told her about him, River didn't actually think of mermaids as being real. Was this Lola, the last one? So achingly beautiful, her eyes were closed like she was sleeping. Her long, white, blonde hair drifted around her, going all the way down past where her golden torso met her shimmery, purplish, cobalt-blue tail. The tiny luminescent scales that covered her glimmered prettily in the ugly water. River's eyes traveled back up to Lola's face. For a moment, it was hard to breathe due to the tightness in her chest. Hot tears pricked. River wanted to comfort Lola, even though she was long dead, trapped in that stagnant hell, her blank face turned upwards, seeking an escape that would never come. River reached out and touched the glass. It was hot to touch when it should have been cold. As she drew her hand back, Lola's eyes snapped open, revealing dead white orbs. The whole eyeball was a milky white, no pupil. River shuddered, panting out of breath. Angel came closer. River could feel the coldness of her body. What have you done? Cat hissed, looking at Angel with hatred. Angel simply tilted her head to the side, a sad smile on her lips. I found her, she promised. There now, my grace. Back to your slumber. Lola's eyes eased shut. River barely heard Angel's words. She was too busy fighting for control over her teeming emotions, the need to vomit getting stronger. Angel wandered away, humming to herself, leaving River and Cat frozen in shock. Cat went to touch the glass, but River stopped him. Don't. He stepped back, his face screwed up. Not knowing what to say, River followed after Angel. To the right of Lola, another case was filled with dozens of bright purple, blue, and green butterflies, frozen in midair. When River walked up, they started to flutter around the case, looking for an escape. Fresh tears filled her eyes at the muffled beating. She placed her trembling hands on the glass when they frantically swarmed over the pressure in her expanded dangerously. A cold hand curved down over her shoulder. You cannot save them. They're not even here any longer. This is simply, how do you say, a trick to the eye, so to speak. I keep them, for they bring me peace. Angel's soft voice made River's skin crawl. She jerked back. Don't touch me, she said, unable to pretend to be unaffected. Angel drew back with a little sigh. Come, I have more to show you. River glanced back at Cat, who was still at Lola's tank. She should have just listened to him and gone back downstairs. The pressure only increased in her as she walked past more glass prisons where things moved frantically towards her. Their unbearable loneliness brought forth her own. She tried to handle it, to be an adult about it. Growing up on the outside, she had been exposed and desensitized to pretty much everything, but this, this was more than death. There was a specific purpose to each case in the room. Angel wouldn't just snuff out a flock of butterflies because she was a bitch. No, no, no. They gave something to her. River just didn't know what. Come see, Angel called from the back of the room, bringing both her and Cat forward. The back wall was covered in mounted deer heads. Each one wore a wig, dreaded or braided, some were short, some were long, trailing down to pull on the floor. It was like someone's obscene way of displaying a wig collection. All of the deer's eyes glittered darkly. The ones with antlers had been bedazzled with a multitude of brilliant gems. It was so fucking weird. Are they not beautiful? Angel wanted to know. River glanced at her, unable to even ask, before reaching out to touch a soft black curl. The vision slammed into her of the fair the hair had belonged to. She hastily let go, well aware that Angel was watching her like a hawk. River backed up and tried to keep her face blank and her motions tight. She failed miserably. Where did you get these? She managed to ask. Do you really not know? Angel mused. 
trailing her long nails down her gold chain. For a moment, River was mesmerized by the movement. These belonged to the fairies who gave themselves to me. Angel's words brought River's eyes back to her. They sacrificed themselves for infinite glory and all that nonsense, Angel said, waving a careless hand toward the wall. Did they give themselves willingly? Cat spit out. Angel's pale eyes widened comically. You are acting as if I am not thankful. I am very, very thankful. You two cannot possibly understand the privilege that this gives them. For a second, River actually held her hands out and looked around her, wondering if she was being punked because you couldn't make this shit up. Why do you need so many of them? River asked in a softer tone, not wanting to push her. I like to wear them, Angel said proudly. River and Cat exchanged a look and followed her around another case, this one filled with a murder of crows frozen in place. Angel held her hand out towards the largest case in the room. What do you think? she asked. A big golden horse faced them, standing in a bed of pretty glittery black sand. Its long, graceful neck had a thick golden white mane that matched its metallic golden coat. The nose was a pinkish nude color, its ears straight and thin. Even its hooves were gold. River's head didn't even come to its muzzle, it was so tall. She couldn't believe how beautiful the damn thing was. Where did you get him? Cat breathed, staring up at him. Angel also stared at the horse, but with hunger. This is my Aurelian. He was most faithful, she said, not answering the question, a creepy, seductive tone to her sweet voice. River was so captured by the horse at first, she didn't notice it had something on its back. She walked around the side, only to stop abruptly, instant horror filling her. It was a little girl, with long, bushy white hair that rested on the horse's back. From the neck down, she was mummified, leaving great dark tenons stretched up her pale bone. Her limbs were too long and looked strange on her fragile little body. Fragments of faded pink cloth still clung to her. Her eyes were closed, but they were too big for her delicate face. Thick white lashes rested against her gray skin. A deep tear slashed across the corner of her bowed gray lips. There was something so terrible about her that River wanted to sink to the ground and bawl. Cat came up behind her. Goddess, he whispered with despair. Who is that? River asked. That is my faith, Angel murmured. Chills ran down River's spine hearing her name. Faint swirling, faint crying swirled around her, reminding her of that dream she had. Cat must have heard it too because they both shivered at the same time. Who's Faith? River asked dully, though, in all honesty, she was afraid to know. Why? Because, because Faith was like that painting in the first room. River knew she wasn't even supposed to look at her. River's burning eyes swept the room in a daze. Angel was never supposed to touch any of these spirits. How did she do this? And I hope you enjoyed reading. I hope you enjoyed listening to me reading um, this little excerpt for you. Be sure to pre-order River at RyanLeslie.com. You can go there or you can go on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Ryan by Ryan Leslie, and um, contact me, get in touch with me on Twitter, Instagram, and come join my haven on the Facebook, all um, hashtag Ryan Leslie. Thank you. My name is Alexander Thomas, and I will be reading a short story starring the star of my most recent novel, Anson Walker. Um, the name of the novel is The Magician's Sin, and it is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at any retailer that where books are sold. 
Um, the name of the short story I'll be reading today is Madness at Miracle Mile. Titan City, 1931. What did you say this was again? Anson Walker prodded the leathery brown sack with a pen. It was almost as tall and wide as the desk upon which it sat, and excreted a musty, oily smell. A keel-like ridge sloped along the center, ending in a slight curl at its lip. It pulsated with an even rhythm and put off enough heat to warm the office several degrees. The lanky, milk-toast man who brought the sack to Anson rubbed the back of his head. He wore round tortoiseshell spectacles and a satchel slung diagonally over his shoulder. His white lab coat was stained brown. His nasally voice grated on Anson's hangover. It's an oath cut. He blinked and adjusted his tilted polka-dotted bow tie. Anson pushed his tongue into his lower lip and scowled. No, I heard you. I just don't know what that is. I'm sorry. I forget that not everyone is an entomologist. Sometimes I get... Anson snapped his fingers. I didn't ask for the life story, kid. No, I suppose you didn't. The young man rubbed his arm. An Oithka is an egg sack. An egg sack? Why the hell did you bring it here? The young man pointed at the Anson Walker exterminator sign on the door's frosted window. My colleagues, the ones I have left, told me you were the monster guy. The ones you have left? Several of my associates disappeared from our job site. Who is it you work for? Oh, they work for me. I'm Carl Leandros, head of Promethean Labs. He outstretched his hand. Anson ignored it. I've heard of you. You rebuilt that lab after your father went bankrupt building that crazy underground city for the World's Fair in 1918. Carl frowned and moved his hand to his satchel strap. How many people have disappeared? Five now. And you think this thing is related? Where did you even find it? It was out on Miracle Mile. Why are you poking around that old amusement park? Anson cocked an eyebrow. It's the only real estate my father left me. I'm, I'm trying to reopen my lab out there. Carl's shoulders dropped as he exhaled. This was in one of the access stations for Subtopia. I brought it straight here after I found it. Anson looked back at the sack. Are you going to be able to pay me? Sounds like you have a lot of your assets tied up. Fortunately, we've moved away from uh, subterranean architecture and into medicine, biology, and a few other natural sciences. Carl smiled and met Anson's skeptical gaze. I've had some profitable patents in the last couple of years. Anson reached into one of his desk drawers, careful not to touch the Oethka, and grabbed a clipboard. Standard contract, then. I have a per diem of $10 to cover expenses and health liabilities. I also charge a fee for the monster in question relative to size, threat, esoteric abilities, and hive likeliness. That price fluctuates, but it averages around $200. Anson scooted around the desk, holding his tie away from the sack as he did so. He handed the contract over. Carl took the clipboard and flipped through a couple pages of the document. Anson Walker is not personally liable for any possessions or maimings that may occur as a result of extermination? Just a little liability waiver, nothing to worry about. Anson waved the page away and placed a pen in Carl's hand. You're the expert, Carl signed on the dotted line. What do you think this could be? Anson pulled the contract off the pad, folded it, and placed it in the pocket of his long black coat. The cool fizz of magic bubbled across his fingers as he pulled his hand from the pocket. He gestured to the Oethka. There aren't a lot of monsters that lay eggs, especially this size. A dragon, maybe? A dragon? Maybe. 
but this would be the biggest dragon egg I ever saw. It's probably not. A burping noise escaped the Oiska, and a stream of noxious liquid began to pour out of the curled lip. The chestnut fleshy membrane squirmed as shapes pressed against the walls of the sack. Segmented legs pushed through the lip and peeled back the sides, dropping several slimy black insects the size of terriers onto the desk and floor. Their long antenna flicked to and fro as the bugs found their footing. The insects had oval-shaped carapaces, the shine and color of obsidian. Each hissed and snapped their mandibles at the air. Their segmented eyes focused on Anson and Carl. The insects on the floor paused, though more were falling out of the Oetka. Anson sputtered and fumbled back into his pocket, trying to grab his cane. I didn't see that coming. Carl reached into his satchel and produced a camera. Fascinating. Those appear to be German cockroach nymphs, but significantly larger than anything on record. For the record, that is not what a nymph looks like. Anson's fingers brushed against the fangs of the dragon head atop his cane. Well, the term nymph is given to a stage of development of any insects, not just cockroaches. Carl removed the lid from his camera lens. When insects were first being scientifically studied, those most often studied were those whose nymphal stage is aquatic. I didn't ask for an explanation. Anson pulled his cane from the pocket. It was a length of African blackwood, topped by a silver dragon's head holding a large diamond between its teeth. I don't know if this is time for a walking stick, Mr. Walker. The diamond channels my magic. Makes it so I don't kill everything around me every time I cast a spell. The insects were still pouring out of the sack in groups of three or four. The creatures on the ground were starting to spread out and chew on Anson's furniture. One knocked the wastebasket over and was crunching on an empty scotch bottle of discarded paper. A pair were gnawing on one of the desk's legs. Carl raised his camera. They do not appear to be hostile. He snapped a picture. The flashbulb filled the small room with white light. The nymph's attention snapped to Carl, and they hissed. Anson rolled his eyes. Really? A group of nymphs charged forward. Their legs clacked against the cheap linoleum. The insects pounced at Carl. Anson interposed, forming a circular shield of white light. He smacked three of them aside, but the fourth latched onto his neck. The mandibles tore into Anson's soft flesh, sending clouds of ash into the air. Carl snapped another photograph. Damn it, will you stop that? Anson kept his focus on strengthening the magic of the shield. More roaches flung themselves forward, frying themselves on the ward. Anson tugged on the body of the nymph attached to him. His hand sank to the spongy exoskeleton as he decapitated the insect. The nymph's head remained lodged in Anson's neck and continued biting. Its antenna brushed him in the face. Let go of me, Anson pried the head from his neck, tearing a portion of, portion of flesh with it. The skin crumbled into black ash in the head's mandibles. Fascinating. They appear to retain motor function and muscle strength post-decapitation. Anson smacked a roach out of the air with his cane. A thunderclap filled the room as the nymph collided with a group of his comrades and exploded. I'm glad you're having a nice time, Carl, but shut the hell up. Nymphs stopped falling out of the sack, leaving two dozen or so insects in the office. The remaining roaches pulled back beside the desk and rubbed themselves against each other. The metallic taste of magic filled the air along with a deep hum. Crimson glow emanated from the nymph's black carapaces. A spell? The roaches hissed in unison and fired a scarlet lightning bolt across the office. Blast took Anson by surprise, catching him in the chest and hurling him through the door. His frosted window shattered in the process. The electricity burrowed into Anson's torso. Power coursed through his veins, rupturing arteries and exploding capillaries. He swore as he hit the wall opposite his office and slumped to the ground in a heap. His muscles spasmed and smoke spiraled off of his body. Anson steadied himself against the wall and stood. 
Ashes swirled inside him, repairing the lightning damage. He limped over to the door dam and raised his cane. Carl's feet were sticking up out of the Oethka. The remaining nymphs encircled the sack and had their front legs raised, almost in prayer. One of them made eye contact with Anson and hissed, causing a chain reaction of noise. When the last roach had sounded off, the Oethka disappeared in a flash of red light, Carl and all. The insects then swelled and exploded, showering the office in slimy red goo. Anson let his weight rest against the door frame. He pulled a cigarette from his pocket and lit it on one of his smoking wounds. At least he signed the waiver. A cab dropped Anson off at the gates of Miracle Mile an hour later. The ruins of the amusement park were bathed in work lights, probably for the Promethean Labs crew. The faded rides, abandoned clam bars, tents, and shacks stood in stark contrast against the night sky. A derelict Ferris wheel, picked for scrap wood and metal, loomed over the boardwalks. Anson raised his hand, and an energy blade appeared in his palm. He sliced through the lock and made his way inside. Anson remembered reading about this place when it first opened to the public 13 years ago. The papers had called it a great time for families across the city, no matter status, and the most miraculous spectacle in Titan City since Professor Mysterium. He wasn't sure which description turned his stomach more. He never considered having a family, something he considered to be a wise choice for an immortal. Anson's worn boots clicked against the pier as he crept along, disturbing the dust and ghosts of Miracle Mile. He passed building after building, trying to find some indication of where the new lab was being built or access to Subtopia. The roaches had to be building their nests in the underground city. It was far from light, far from humans, and full of things for them to break down for nutrients. The ruins of an old directory lay in the center of a crossroads along the pier, its faded paint lost to the ravages of exposure and time. Anson reached into his pocket and palmed a pair of polished silver discs. He placed them on either side of the wooden box and stood. Hansen centered himself, planting his feet, concentrating on the solidness of the wood beneath him. White motes of light snapped into existence and surrounded the directory. A hum reverberated through the crossroads. The magic formed a spherical grid around the directory. It floated off the ground and hovered in front of Anson. Anson clasped his hands and whispers, Kronos, Gugut, Lamo, Itu, and all the other lords of time. Peel back the years and allow me to see what was. The hum echoed and the directory shuddered. The wood began to warp and unwarp. Dust and debris fell away and stark new paint appeared on the map, details reappearing in reverse. Anson stopped it as soon as the directory was legible again. He mapped a route to the closest Subtopia access point and dropped the directory back in place. Anson made his way through Miracle Mile. Here there was a carousel whose poor horses had been long forgotten by children who were now grown. A row of neglected carnival games, doomed to never part a fool with his money a game. Crashing ocean waves and the occasional rusted hinge were the only noises on the wind. The Subtopia access point was constructed of concrete, giving the appearance of a bunker more than a portal to a brighter tomorrow. Smashed and burned out light bulbs lined the stone around the tarnished bronze doors. Art Deco designs were carved into the doors along with the words Subtopia, the city of tomorrow, across the top. Anson pulled the handle down, crunching through years of rust, and slid inside. A sharp ping, like a hammer striking metal, sounded as Anson descended the staircase into Subtopia. An ancient engine rumbled to life somewhere in the darkness beyond, and worn light bulbs flickered on one by one. He was in a lobby of sorts a hallway lined with time-worn murals depicting a better life for mankind. 
The cage elevator at the end of the room dinged and opened. I'm definitely charging him more than $200 for this. Hanson glanced at the murals as he made his way to the elevator. Once colorful frescoes depicted a world where every city was hundreds of feet below ground, while the surface was given back to nature and farms. A world where every building would be carved into the earth itself, and these new mole men and nature could live in harmony. The fever dream of an eccentric with too much money. The cool sting of magic washed over Anson as he entered the elevator. The doors clicked shut and the car shook as it began its descent. A man's voice crackled out of a radio in the ceiling. Welcome to Subtopia. I am Adonis Leandros and I thank you for being by. Imagine a world on... We have nothing to fear about our subterranean realm. We will... New frontier. It is man's... Promethean Labs would like you to enjoy your stay. The light bulb snapped off, along with the elderly Andros's voice, plunging Anson into silent darkness. The elevator ground to a halt. Tink, tink, tink. The skittering of segmented legs broke the silence. A roach was climbing along the outside of the cage. The elevator shifted as another leapt onto the opposite side. Anson tightened his grip on the cane. Their feet slipped between the bars as they made their way to the door. Metal groaned as the roach dug into the hinges of the door. A segmented eye the size of a dinner plate peered into the cage. White lightning crackled across Anson's hands. He fired the spell into the roach. A deep hiss filled the shaft. The car lurched and a crack rang out. The chain had snapped. Gravity asserted control, sending Anson and the car into a freefall. The rush of air coming in through the bars buffeted Anson about as he struggled to reach the elevator's floor. Anson formed a massive cocoon of white energy and braced for impact. Fifteen seconds later, the car hit the bottom of the shaft and exploded. Anson's shell shot out of the crash and ricocheted down the hall, jolting and jerking Anson along the way. The cocoon came to a stop in a crevasse. Anson groaned and lifted his head. One of his ribs poked out of his chest, leaking black liquid on his white dress shirt. His right arm didn't cooperate when he tried to move it. He raised his left arm instead and snapped the exposed bone off. Anson bit back a scream and pushed the other half back into his skin. The ashes began stitching him back together. Anson grabbed his cane with his good, with his good hand. Crunching legs pulled him out of his stupor. A cockroach the size of a Packard car skittered around the corner. Its feelers, as thick as sailing rope, twitched in the air. Its carapace was tan, and two parallel streaks lined its thorax. A pulse of crimson light emanated from the antenna. The magic passed over Anson's cocoon. The roach turned its massive head toward Anson's hiding spot and strode forward, making a beeline for the cocoon. Anson moaned as he tried to brace himself, but aggravated his injuries. He clenched his left hand and prepared to drop the shield, but something caught his attention. The husk of an oithka sat in a nearby crevasse. Instead of dropping the shield, Anson strengthened it. He filled in all the viewports, creating a solid white orb. He choked back the pain of the effort and waited. A minute passed. The crunch of mandibles sounded on either side of the orb. The cocoon jerked as it was as the roach lifted it into the air. They began to move. The roach dropped Anson's goethka on the ground twenty minutes later. Anson waited a moment, listening for the skittering legs to fade away. He rolled out of the cocoon, swearing as he hit the ground. Anson steadied himself against the cocoon and staggered to his feet. The chamber around him was a massive cavern of work stone. Its arched ceiling was hundreds of yards up, and luminescent fungi cast a pale teal glow across the room. 
A smell of oil and must was enough to make Anson dry heave, and the sound of a crunching exoskeleton gave him chills. The flash of a camera pulled Anson from his retching. Carl was coated in brown slime, kneeling and snapping pictures. He laughed like a madman, giggling his insanity. Arthropoda, Insecta, Watodea, Ectopedia, Botella. Anson placed his cane in the crook of his arm and snatched the camera from Carl. Wake up, wise guy, we gotta get out of here. Botella, Botella, Botella. If I wanted to listen to Latin gibberish, I'd go to Mass again. Come on. Smooth baritone voice spoke out from behind Anson. You'll find that Mr. Landros is quite insane. Best to leave him be. Anson wheeled around. Dozens of enormous cockroaches filled the space behind him. The sound of hundreds more marching his direction echoed from the tunnels at the edge of the cavern. One roach stood on a stone platform, carried by its brethren. Anson just bit his lip and frowned. Talking cockroaches? Was a step up from high likeliness? Why have you come here, magic man? The speaker was one of the ro- was the roach on the platform. He had a dark red carapace and black streaks running down his thorax. A massive ruby hung from his neck, its chains made of solidified secretion. Heard Miracle Mile had a roach problem. Upton Sinclair is going to go bananas when he hears about this. Miracle Mile has a human problem. It belongs to the roaches. Is that why you kidnapped those people? No. The roach snapped its mandibles together. We took them so they could make more magic. Where are they? They are all around you. The roach clapped his front legs together, and red light bathed the cavern. The five Promethean Labs employees were hanging from lines of solidified secretion along the walls of the cavern. Large stones protruded from their abdomens, coated in thick blood. Smaller rocks filled their arms and legs and were thrust into their eye sockets. All of them were dead. The roach yelled, Now we have more of the red rocks. We will have the magic. Anson closed his eyes and shook his head. It's not how it works. My great-great-grandfather took magic from the red rock. Make the little man give us red rocks. Carl shrieked as the roaches hissed and stepped forward. Anson stepped in front of Carl. Wait, almighty cockroach. Carl cannot give you magic, but I can. I am a wizard. The bugs stopped their advance. The leader gazed at Anson, a sinister gleam in its segmented eye. Prove it. Prove that I'm a wizard? Make magic. Anson nodded and leaned on his cane, staring at his useless arm. Of course, your eminence. Behold. Pain racked his body as Anson conjured an orb of white light. The roaches hissed, seemingly in applause. The leader reared back on his back legs and let his wing flaps clap together. Bring the magic man rocks and we will have magic. I told you it doesn't work that way. Anson waved his good hand when the roaches screeched. I can still give you magic, but I need to see your stone. Your eminence. A hush fell over the roaches. Only the sound of their joints snapping against each other filled the silence. The leader regarded Anson for a moment. No tricks? Never. You can trust me. (laughs) Very well. Bring him the stone. Another roach pulled the amulet off the leader's neck and scuttled over to Anson. It placed the gem in his hand and skittered back to the crowd. Power pulsed inside the ruby. It had been decades since he'd held another wizard's focus, but this was the genuine article. Anson traced his fingers along the facets and focused his own energy. Oh, mighty magic of mine, restore radiance, regality, and romance to these rascally roaches. 
Anson raised the ruby above his head and started to funnel white magic into the stone. The red magic screamed in his mind as Anson's power overtook it. Cradle these cockroach casters as they carry your call. The roaches began to glow with white light. They pressed together and hissed. The stone cracked, and Anson forced a final torrent of energy through the ruby. The gem disintegrated into sparkling white powder. A shockwave of energy cascaded through the cavern, overtaking every roach at once. The insects screeched and stampeded each other as Leandros's magic disappeared. Anson formed a dome around himself and Carl as the chamber descended into chaos. In a matter of minutes, the enormous insects shrank into ordinary cockroaches and scattered. Carl's head flashed with crimson light, and he toppled over. Anson dragged him out of the main cavern and pulled smelling salts from his pocket. Carl's eyes fluttered open. Where am I? We're in Subtopia. I dealt with your roach problem. Where's my team? I'm sorry. Anson frowned, turning away from Carl. I never found them. Tears dropped out of Carl's eyes. How did I even get here? I think it's called an Oethka. Hello, my name is D.K. Marie. My book, Fairy Tale Lies, is a contemporary romance and will be out on June 3rd. Pre-orders are available on such sites as Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes and Nobles, and many more. If you would like a list of all the links, please check out my website at dkmarie.com. What I will be reading for you today is about the middle of chapter three. The main characters have met, but only hours ago. There's a definite attraction, but both know it's better to ignore it. Still, there isn't a reason they can't have lunch together. And this is what I'll be reading to you. I hope you enjoy lunch. It's delicious, but be warned. There's some swearing and plenty of heat. I didn't bring anything but saw a few restaurants within walking distance. I'm going to see what I can find. Greta recognized the deep timber of Jacob's voice. It sent a shiver of pleasure down her spine. She stopped at the bottom of the stairs as the three men came into view, moving past her and towards the front double doors. Without thinking too much about her motives, she interrupted them. Sorry, I didn't mean to eavesdrop. I overheard your lunch dilemma. She inclined her head in Jacob's direction. There's a great carryout close by. I was going to walk there. You're welcome to join me. The three men eyed her in varying stages of surprise. Jacob opened his mouth, but a guy with a gray beard answered first. Thank you, ma'am. We don't want to be a bother. I'm going to share my lunch with him. Jacob and a tall, rail-thin guy standing next to him broke out into raucous laughter. What? Greybeard asked, sounding offended. Marty, you eat like a horse, replied the other worker through his laughter. I can't picture you sharing an apple, let alone half of your lunch. Besides, Jacob said, his gaze locking on hers, I'm starving. I want everything. His words sent a wicked buzz of anticipation zinging through her. She dropped his gaze, afraid her desire was painted on her. Jacob. Disapproval dripped from the older man, the one Jacob had called Marty. Sorry, I didn't mean to cause a problem. Greta turned away, embarrassed. Was her little infatuation with Jacob so obvious his boss felt like he needed to protect his employee from her? I'd like to go with you, Jacob called after her, his heavy footfalls coming closer. Are you leaving now? She stopped and faced him, refusing to meet the other man's eyes. Yes, I'm ready now, are you? His long legs ate up the rest of the space between him and he stood in front of her, like you wouldn't believe. His words sounded like a whispered promise, 
A thrill shivered through her, growing and spreading. Her whole body throbbed, keeping in time with his quick, with her quickening pulse. Take a breath. He's just a man. She led him through the living room and to a short hallway to the back patio. They passed the in-ground pool and cabana, stepping to a tree-covered path. This is a shortcut. It'll take us to the back gate and straight onto the main street, she told him. His gaze met hers, moving briefly to her mouth before studying the path. Flowers bloomed everywhere, roses, lilacs, and other plants she couldn't name. The sight took her back to her childhood when she pretended the courtyard was a fairy tale forest. Even now, it hadn't lost its magical appeal. After living in a college town apartment on and off for the last six years, she'd forgotten its beauty. Greta ran her fingertips over the different flowers and leaves, very aware of Jacob. He was the type of man any woman would have a hard time overlooking. Yet her usual need to fill the silence was absent. Her ease around him was unexpected and wonderful. Reaching the back gate, he latched it. He unlatched it and opened it for her, stretching his sea green polo across his muscular chest. She tried not to stare. And needing a distraction, she asked the first question that popped in her mind. Is Marty your boss? Not real stimulating. Still, it was better than asking some of the other questions, such as, was he willing to take off his shirt? Sure, way more interesting. Not at all appropriate. At all. He nodded. Yeah, he owns careful moves. She pointed to her left, indicating a direction. He didn't seem pleased you were leaving. Is he afraid you won't come back? I might not. He's been a real ass. Sorry, Jacob winced before smiling. But no, he doesn't like his men hanging around the clients. Doesn't want anyone claiming we're unprofessional. Greta held in a laugh. If his boss knew half the crazy improper thoughts she'd had this afternoon regarding one of his employees, he'd worry more about his client's action than those of his employees. Sounds like my father. He's a real stickler for that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah? What's he do? Business owner... She stopped mid-sentence, a huge gust of wind swirling around them, blowing her unbound hair into her eyes before diving under her dress and lifting it. She gasped, clutching the cotton material and glancing at Jacob, catching him eyeing her legs. He averted his gaze to the rolling clouds. Think the storm will pass? Who knows? The weather. A nice, safe topic, though another part of her mind was dissecting the hungry way he'd eaten up the side of her legs. It's been looming. So far, nothing except wind and heavy clouds. He turned his attention from the sky. Find anything interesting in your library? The sudden topic changed through her, but she rolled with it. No, I skimmed through Gatsby and reread a few of my favorite scenes. Reading was touching the truth. What she'd really been doing was staring without comprehension, too busy straining to hear Jacob's voice and footsteps, and wondering why she cared. Great Gatsby. I love it, even if the ending's depressing as hell. She cut a sideways glance. Was he serious? He must have caught her skepticism because he chuckled. I know, amazing. I can lift heavy stuff and read. Not what I was thinking, she lied, knowing the heat flooding her cheeks gave her away. Uh-huh, sure. Believe it or not, I can read books without pictures. Just last summer, I graduated from Dr. Seuss levels. My family's so proud. Ha ha, very funny. Greta was horrified to hear herself giggle. She wasn't a giggler. What do you like to read? And please don't give me the names of children's authors. Unless, of course, it's the Grimm brothers. He croaned, a smile tugging at the corner of his mouth. 
God, no. I've had enough of those when I was a kid. My mom was obsessed with those stories. In what way? Let me see. She read all of their stuff, both in English and German, married a man with the last name Grimm, and named her boys Jacob and Wilhelm. Oh, my God. You're a Grimm brother. I love it. Glad you love it, he gave a wry smile. But if you ever happen to run into my brother, Will, whatever you do, don't call him Wilhelm. With difficulty, she held in another atrocious giggle. She loved his dry humor. Duly noted. They rounded the corner and her favorite sandwich shop came into view. There it is, Maddie's Deli. Best lunches in, P- in Petite Boys. Good thing, he frowned at the darkening sky. The storm might break open any second. Maybe. Still, this is Michigan. You never know, it might pass us by. Facts and desires were churning within her, violently as the clouds above. She couldn't tell truth from fiction, only knew she didn't want to rush her time with him. Jacob was a stranger she wouldn't see after today. It didn't matter. She wasn't quite ready to give him up. She was too sensible to ever act on her attraction. However, it sure was fun standing close to the flame. They crossed the street and he held open the door to the deli. Stepping past, she brushed against him. The slight contact had her insides tightening in keen awareness, and she had to force herself to keep moving. The heat might be fun, but the single flame could become an inferno and consume everything in its path. He'd come in close behind her. All she had to do was lean back to press against his delectable chest. Resisting the urge was difficult, making it nearly impossible to concentrate on the menu posted above the counter. She didn't try and order the first thing her eyes focused on, a turkey sandwich with homemade sauce. Turning, she studied him while he read the menu. The impulse to run the pads of her fingers along his jaw was hard to resist. It made her heart beat a little faster. If I order the large fruit salad, will you have some? He asked, seeming oblivious to her oogling. Thank God. She nodded, and he added it to his order. The teenage boy behind the counter handed them a ticket, and they moved off to wait. Jacob leaned against the wall, crossing his feet at the ankles and shoving his hands into his pockets. Thanks for bringing me here. Left to my own devices, I'd probably have spent my lunch break wandering around trying to find food. Or worse, sharing lunch with Marty. She laughed at his dire tone. I don't mind. I needed to eat, and I like talking with you. Yeah, it's been nice. He sounded shocked. Greta opened her mouth, licking her lips, planning to tease him. His gaze zeroed in on her mouth, making her playfulness evaporate. Uncrossing his feet, he shifted closer. She didn't step back, and he advanced. Jacob's eyes jumped to hers and then back to her mouth teeth capturing his beautiful full bottom lip briefly before letting go. She wanted to lick the moisture left behind. Dragging her gaze back to his eyes, she found desire swirling within them. He ran a thumb gently along her lip before leaning close enough that his breath mingled with hers. He was going to kiss her, and she wanted it. Might have even whispered, please. For once in her life, she didn't care about rules and consequences. Her only concern was discovering the taste and feel of his mouth on hers. Order ready for Jacob and Greta. Greta jerked back. The team behind the counter was holding their two white paper bags. Jacob exhaled. The warmth of his breath brushed against her neck. She glanced back at him and caught desire and perhaps regret flash across his face. I'll get him, he murmured, 
then left to retrieve the food. Greta ran a shaky hand through her windblown hair and down her sides. She hoped organizing her outward appearance would slow her racing heart and runaway urges. To her relief, self-discipline and the respite of space locked up some of her desire. By the time Jacob returned with their lunches, she was more composed. Without a word, they headed out into the ever-darkening spring sky, neither acknowledging the almost kiss. Thunder rumbled and the wind shoved at their backs, pushing them down the sidewalk at a brisk pace. The storm would hit. The only question was when would it strike and how much damage would it leave behind? The rain held off until they were inside her mother's gardens. Then the skies opened. Greta took Jacob's hand and tugged him to the nearby guest house. They reached the front door as an ear-splitting clap of thunder crashed around them, followed by a bolt of lightning that lit up the murky afternoon. She flipped open the keypad, typing in the six-digit code. Second later, it flashed green, and she exhaled with relief. Thank goodness the password hadn't changed. Twisting the knob, she shoved open the door, pulling Jacob inside with her. He bolted the door shut, not letting go of her hand. He cocked a questioning brow and scanned the house. Greta followed his gaze, taking in the calm, muted tones of the spacious living room. She stopped at the Alfonso Mucha lithograph hanging above the couch. It was her favorite. She loved its meandering lines and vibrant colors. But what spoke to her was the way the woman appeared serene and confident. Would she ever be like that, or was it unattainable, merely an artistic illusion? Jacob cleared his throat. Whose place is this? We're on your property, right? She glanced at him and nodded. He was eyeing the hallway, the one leading to the bedrooms, rooms with large beds and soft sheets. The image of Jacob sprawled naked on one of those beds flashed through her mind. Miles of tawny skin against crisp white sheets, delectable. She shook her head, trying to clear away her sinful visions and took a deep breath. This was a mistake. The action caused her to inhale his scent of cedar, rain, and man. She cleared her throat. Yes, it's the guest house. We can eat here and wait out the storm. Guest house, of course it is. He let go of her hand and set their bags of food on the table next to the door before bending to remove his damp shoes. The absence of his hand left her cold. She shoved the crazy reaction aside and followed his lead. Leaning over, she tugged on the clasp of her sandals, causing her other wet foot to slip from under her, and she fell on Jacob, hard. He let out a startled grunt and grabbed her waist, losing his own footing and slamming into the wall, stopping them both from landing in a pile on the wet tile floor. They froze for interminable seconds before she noticed her hands were clutching his tantalizing biceps and other parts of her were pressed firmly against him. Firm muscles which mixed with his scent was an erotic fantasy come true. Nonetheless, she forced herself to shift from his hold. She needed to before she did something embarrassing, say, like licking his exposed neck. Sorry, it appears my years of ballet haven't helped much. I'm probably the least graceful person you'll ever meet. She hoped her voice didn't betray how much she liked being against him. I don't mind. Fall on me any time. His tone was light, but his eyes were heavy and full of hunger. Her, he ex exuded pure carnal desire, and it didn't help one bit with her restraint. She was starting to suspect they'd need a whole continent between them to remove the rising sexual tension. She stepped further away, her body screaming in protest, and tried for nonchalance. I'm starving. Ready to eat? Yes. 
He kept his volatile gaze on her, and she had the distinct impression he wasn't talking about food. Yet, he didn't bring her back into his arms like she wanted. Grabbing their lunches, she headed to the kitchen. Seconds later, heavy footsteps followed her. The open floor plan had the granite countertops and bar stools separating the living room from the kitchen. Greta pulled out a stool and sat. Jacob took the seat next to her, and she handed him his lunch. He unwrapped his sandwich, gazing around the room. Is that a is that a Shaomir Shum dumbwaiter? Following his gaze to the corner of the kitchen, she spotted a small intricate table and shrugged. I don't know, maybe. How could you not know? His scowl, his gaze jumping from her and the table thing. For starters, I don't own any of it. What, was she supposed to keep track of the odds and ends her mother and stepfather bought? They loved their swank and antiques, but she couldn't care less. What do you mean you don't own it? His expression swung from outrage to confusion. If his tone wasn't edged with hostility, she'd have found it funny. This is my parents' house. For diplomacy's sake, she had long since referred to her mother's husband as a parent, even though Greta had never cared for Nigel. She preferred her father's unpretentious ways. Oh, I didn't realize. Pretending not to be defensive, Greta folded back the paper wrapping around her sandwich. Do I look old enough to have amassed enough money to afford this house, let alone the main one and the surrounding property? She arched an eyebrow. Please be gentle with your answer. No, sorry, of course, you don't look old. His grin was disarming, making the rest of his sentence hurt more. I figured you to be around my age. I assumed you either married rich or bought it with trust fund money. People around here are guaranteed this stuff right out of the womb. Homes, money, trust funds, stuff like that. People around here? What a jerk. She set her sandwich on its butcher paper and scowled at him. People like me? Did you hear the part about being gentle? His forehead creased and he must have replayed his words in his head because his expression turned to one of chagrin. Sorry, it was a shitty thing to say. Yep, even worse than insinuating I appeared old. He leaned back and groaned, running a hand over his face. He dropped it and met her frown head on. Shit, I apologize. My only excuse is I've spent too much time working for the uber wealthy. Opulence and privilege made many of them arrogant and insufferable. But I was dead wrong to lump you in a category because of your address. I'm sorry. His apology sounded sincere. Still, his comment had stung. His original assumption of her and her hometown was irritating. What did it matter? They'd have lunch and go their separate ways. Apology accepted. Greta gave a tight smile. Come on, let's eat. Jacob cleared his throat and reached for his sandwich. After a few minutes of awkward silence, they began to talk of innocuous things, and soon their small dispute was forgotten. He asked about the house and the antiques he'd spotted, surprising her with how much he knew. When she wasn't much help, they switched, asking if she liked living in Petit Boys. After telling him she was only visiting and her place was in Lansing, they switched to talk of the state's capital. Greta found talking with Jacob was, was as enjoyable as oogling him. His skewed sense of humor and candid way of speaking was both refreshing and fun. She glanced at her sandwich and was surprised to find most of it gone, along with the majority of the fruit salad they'd been sharing. Do you want the last strawberry? Without thinking, she popped it whole into her mouth. She froze before biting down. Amusement played over his face, and he gave a wicked smile. Yes, I do. He was having way too much fun at her expense. Straightening her spine, she stared, at, she stared him in the eyes and pushed the berry out with the tip of her tongue. 
She raised her brows with a come-and-get-it look. Disbelief flickered across his face, giving her a burst of satisfaction. Second later, a wave of lust replaced it, and his gaze pinned her with a promise of paradise. With pleasure, he bent, taking his time biting off the tip of the berry, brushing his mouth softly across hers. After swallowing the small piece, he traced his tongue gently along the bottom of her lip, capturing a small bead of juice. He tasted of strawberries, desire, and sin. The erotic playfulness of his mouth was the hottest thing she'd ever experienced while fully clothed. Heck, maybe even naked. That was one hell of a sweet strawberry, he hummed, running a thumb along her bottom lip. She swallowed the fruit and resisted the urge to suck his finger into her mouth. Maybe it wasn't the berry, she said, with surprising boldness, relishing the way he fixated on her mouth. Maybe not. His voice was laden with desire. I'll need another taste to be sure. He came near again, pressing his lips tentatively, as if waiting for her to pull away. When she didn't, he explored her mouth with a little more heat. His tongue brushed against hers, like the sweep of a match ready to ignite. She grasped his shoulders and then ran a hand to the top of his neck, slid her fingers into his hair. His hand traveled up her thigh, and his mouth ravished hers with delicious expertise. The myriad of sensations was exquisite. The brush of his lips, the scrape of his rough stubble against her sensitive skin sent a coil of need between her legs. He made her simultaneously melt and ignite with need. His hand snaked around her waist. Come here, he rumbled. The desire in his voice matched her own, and it didn't even occur to her to resist. She moved to sit sidelong on his lap. And to keep this from turning NC-17, I'll stop here. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you so much, authors. Yes, thank you. Thank you for sharing your work with us and with our outlets, and you should go buy their work. Yeah. Outlets. Thanks to the authors for trusting us with their work, Mm -hmm. first off, but thank you, outlets, for listening and supporting indie authors. Yeah. Now, support them further by going and buying their stuff. Yes. Put the release dates on your calendar if the books aren't out yet. Some of them are. Some of them are. Yeah. So go buy the ones that are out. Yeah. And then put release dates on your calendar for the other ones, and yes. then go buy them. Yes. <laughs> you, you know you liked what you heard, so go buy it. Yeah. I and mean, if you it's... didn't like what you heard, still go buy it, because these are good people. Right. I mean, it's that simple, really. Yeah. So uh, check out our website, www.shamelessplugspodcast.com. We will have links yep. to all of our featured authors on there. Yes. Um, and thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.